guys! Welcome back to The Dog Whispers. I'm Caroline and I would like to welcome you once again to another episode of Studying With Me. I'm not sure whether you heard the previous episode, but I spoke about heavy menstrual bleeding last week. And as promised, today we will be continuing from where we left off. Last week, I talked about this and that, the causes, the history, the blah 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 of heavy menstrual bleeding. And I'm here to test you right now. Can you tell me what is the commonest pathological cause of heavy menstrual bleeding? Aha! I hope you got it right because the answer is fibroid. Now, what exactly are fibroids? Well, also known as leiomyomata, fibroids are basically benign tumors of the myometri. And it's also really common because apparently 25% of women have fibroids. My mind is blown! Now, where do these fibroids actually grow at? Apparently, there are a few classifications of the position or the sites of where a fibroid grows at. First, there's the intramural fibroid, wherein basically it lives in the wall of the uterus. There is also subserosal fibroids, wherein these fibroids grow outwards, outside of the uterus. The opposite of that, which is the submucosal fibroids, they grow inwards into the inside of the uterus. Now, when it comes to subserosal and submucosal fibroids, they can also grow on a stalk attached to the uterus, and in this case, they are known as pedunculated or polypoid fibroids. So, what exactly causes fibroid to grow? Now, apparently, apparently, we don't really know as well. Like studies don't really know the actual cause of it. However, there is a link between fibroid growth and estrogen, and probably progesterone as well. Because of this. It is likely to regress after menopause because you know the estrogen in the body has been reduced. Which brings me to the potential complications of fibroids. Since fibroids are so estrogen and progesterone dependent, any medication that you give to a woman that increases such hormone levels has the potential to stimulate the growth of the fibroids. For example, a woman, a postmenopausal woman, undertakes hormone replacement therapy there is a high likelihood that the fibroids will grow again. Likewise, physiological increment of um, these hormone levels, for example, during mid-pregnancy periods, there is a potential for these fibroids to enlarge as well. Regardless, during pregnancy, there are multiple complications that can be linked to fibroids. Okay, now visualize this with me. There is a baby, there's a fetus there. And if there is another fibroid there, it will be fighting, it will be competing for space from the baby. So in this case, sometimes it will be so big that it will push the baby out prematurely, leading to premature delivery. Besides this, it can also lead to the baby to present in the wrong way, it could lead to breach delivery, it can also lead to transverse lie of the, the fetus. In the event that the fibroid grows close to the cervix, the opening of the, the uterus, it can also lead to obstructed labor which will require a caesarean section. After pregnancy, during the postpartum period, there's a potential for fibroids to undergo things like hemorrhage. And the pedunculated fibroids has a higher tendency 
to undergo torsion in the postpartum period. Not forgetting to mention that fibroids has the potential to undergo degeneration. So degeneration is basically caused uh, by the lack of blood supply to the uterus and to the fibroid itself. And there's a certain condition known as red degeneration, which highly occurs during pregnancy periods and represents with really painful and tender uterus. It can also lead to hemorrhage as well as necrosis. A different type of degeneration is the hyaline as well as the cystic degeneration, which will present a little bit differently. It will be soft, partly liquefied, and is associated with less pain as compared to red degeneration. Last but certainly not the least, fibroids can also undergo malignant changes and cause cancer. And in that case, it is known as lyomyosarcomata. So next, I will be briefly talking you through how to take a basic history of a woman who is undergoing fibroid and fibroid-associated problems. So it's good to note, first of all, that in 50% of women with fibroid, it is usually asymptomatic and is only discovered during the pelvic or abdominal examination. It has also been noted that symptoms associated with fibroids are more related to the site rather than the size of the fibroid. First and most common issue associated with fibroid are menstrual problems. As mentioned in the last episode, menorrhagia is highly common in people with fibroids. Yes, that is a problem. However, timing of menstruation is usually unchanged in women with fibroids. Intermenstrual loss is possible in people with submucosal or polypoid fibroids. Also, these menstrual problems are more common in perimenopausal women. Next, pain is common in women with fibroids as well. Example will be dysmenorrhea, as well as torsion, red degeneration, or sarcomatous changes that we mentioned earlier. Other than that, just like any other tumor, a fibroid has the potential to cause compression symptoms. So because of its close proximity to the bladder, it can compress the bladder and lead to symptoms such as urinary frequency as well as retention symptoms. And likewise, if the fibroid compresses the ureters, it can lead to hydronephrosis. Also, if it compresses the tubal ostia, it can lead to impaired fertility in a woman as well. And during the history-taking process, it's important for you to remember such potential symptoms that a fibroid can um, present. And you should elicit all these as well as um, confirm what kind of um, complications that the woman is at risk at so that you can manage the patient in a personalized way. So next up, you know the drill, it is examination time. When palpating on pelvic or abdominal examination, you can expect to be able to palpate a solid mass. And this mass arises from the pelvis and is continuous with the uterus. In the event that the fibroids are multiple small fibroids, this will be felt like irregular knobbly enlargements under your fingers. Now, the investigation process is very similar to the one of um, heavy menstrual bleeding problems. I guess I can just help you recap a little bit of what we discussed last week as well, but I won't go into details of it. As per usual, we always start with the blood. And if that's the case, a full blood count will be done 
and the hemoglobin will be seen as either low or high in a person with fibroids. Reason for a low hemoglobin is because of menorrhagia, which is expected, and it could be high because fibroids have a tendency of secreting erythropoietin. And a transvaginal ultrasound will be very helpful in detecting any submucosal fibroids in a uterus. Whereas an MRI or laparoscopy may be required to distinguish a fibroid from an ovarian mass and as well as an adenomyosis. Hysteroscopy can be used to assess the distortion of the uterine cavity if fertility is an issue in a woman. Alright, we are at the last lap of the race. We are at the management process. Alright, so in asymptomatic patients with small or slow-growing fibroids, most of the time, no treatment will be required because the risk of malignancy is really small. However, larger fibroids um, that are not removed should be serially measured by examination or ultrasound because there is a remote possibility of the fibroid to undergo malignant changes. When the fibroid causes symptoms such as heavy menstrual bleeding, you can refer to the treatment that we mentioned last week. In a small fibroid, less than 3 centimeters, there's a certain surgery that can be done to just quickly remove the fibroid. It is hysteroscopically done and it's called a transcervical resection of the fibroid. In fact, sometimes you can even give a GnRH agonist for 1 month or 2 months before the surgery so that it can shrink the fibroid and make it easier to remove during the surgery. In the event that the fibroid is larger than 3 cm, in terms of medication, you can give the same things as before. However, the intrauterine system is less recommended, maybe because it somehow can stand in the way of the, the fibroid and could lead to further complications as well. And when it comes to surgery, there is a few surgeries that we have yet to talk about. First is the myomectomy. This is a procedure that can be done in a lady who medical treatment has failed but um, the lady still wants to be able to reproduce in the future. However, this myomectomy procedure can lead to excessive blood loss so the patient needs to be aware of the risk of needing blood transfusion or even a hysterectomy simply to save her life. A GnRH analog can be given two or three months prior to the treatment so that the fibroid will be shrunken and to reduce the vascularity so that there will be easier surgery that can be undertaken. There is, however, another alternative to myomectomy as well as hysterectomy. It is known as uterine artery embolization. It is a very good alternative because it has 80% success rate and it is linked to shorter hospital stays as well as a quicker return to normal activities. However, however, there is a catch to it because pain may get worse and there are higher admission readmission rates compared to myomectomy. And at the end of the day, hysterectomy might still be required. As for the effects of um, uterine artery embolization on fertility, it is unclear. So it should not be offered to women who desires to have future pregnancies. So voila, that's about it. I hope you had a great time listening today. Stay tuned for our future episodes. Bye!